Welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your hosts Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch as we examine the ever-changing relationship between the UK and China. Our aim is fairly simple, to learn more about the decision makers, ideas, threats and opportunities that underpin this bilateral, and to inject some complexity back into the discussion. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent happening, what's going on with some experts, and look at the parliamentary output and field some questions from you. Hello, Steve. How's it going? I am good, Sam. Fresh off our pictures in the paper, all is well. Yeah, indeed. I uh, I would almost thought I'd never say this, but I'm getting sick and tired of seeing my own face, um, which is unfortunate. I now know how my girlfriend feels. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, I think uh, it's worth at the top of the episode discussing what we've got coming up today. So I think we're going to roll through in leisurely time a brief update on if there is any at all, the big story from last week, the two alleged people charged under the OSA. And then we're going to quickly tap on the fact that Parliament's off on recess. And by the way, you can catch Steve and I at the Conservative Party conference. Do drop in and say hello. We'll be wandering around lost. Then we're going to touch on the United Nations General Assembly and a brief bit on Taiwan. I mean, one, one thing I just want to quickly mention that I think some actually really big news, and this is around UK personnel. Um, we have a new Majest- oh, His Majesty's Trade Commissioner to China and Hong Kong, and that's Lewis Neal. Lewis was previously the Director for Economic Diplomacy at the Foreign Office. So I think it's a really interesting and important appointment, uh, especially at a really, really critical time. And I think just one thing to mention, the UK-China bilateral trading relationship is £137 billion sterling every year. Yes, there's still quite an enormous deficit in regards to inbound and outbound, but this is a really, really critical appointment. And um, it follows John Edwards and Tom Duke, who did, a, in my opinion, did a fantastic job, but during a really challenging period of time. So delighted to, to welcome on Lewis and we hopefully we can engage with him in maybe future podcasts. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting time to, I mean, interesting is underplaying it, a fascinating and probably incredibly stressful time to take up that job. And it'll be, it'll be worth watching and seeing what rolls out of it. And I think also while we're on the congratulating spree, we should also congratulate Matt Burney, who's been appointed the British Consul General in Shanghai. So that's a really, really interesting spree of hires actually out in the region. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know Matt very well. We used to work together back in Beijing when he was a director of the British Council in China. Arguably, he's taking on the, one of the most important economic positions globally, and that's due to the Shanghai and the development all around that area. Mm. So two really, really important and critical roles for the UK. So good luck to both. Good luck to both. Uh, okay, so rolling on, let's briefly recap um, if, if there have been any new developments around the two arrests under the OSA, the official secret site last week. Hmm. Okay, so I think we've got slightly more information that has come out about the case, but no real details. To be honest, we're still in the speculation phase. Most people are asking, how could this happen? What has happened? Who in Parliament knew? When did they know? Um, one thing that I still think is quite well, slightly strange, well, very strange to me, all the photos of the suspected spy were of me, him and Alicia Kearns, but they blurred out the suspect's face. So I just don't really see the point. It was just more of a black square would have would have been better. Um, but thank you to maybe the two, three hundred people that got in contact to say, did you know you were in the paper? Yes, I did. Um, and then it were also <laughs> followed up by, um, so what's happened? We still don't know. It's, it's the truth. Yeah, look, and the, the fact that Steve's not getting royalties for this and for his picture being published is, is why he's still on this podcast and he hasn't retired yet, unfortunately. 
But uh, yeah, I think, Steve, that's absolutely spot on. We At this stage, everything that's out there is still speculation. There have been no new details that have emerged from the initial police statement in the Sunday Times coverage. But I, I think the coverage that has emerged has become slightly more complex is probably the wrong word, but slightly less breathless and a bit more time to consider what what it could be. You know, to give you a couple of examples, influential spectator writer Matthew Paris published a piece about what we should and shouldn't be potentially thinking with regards to his past experiences with espionage and spies, et cetera, et cetera. And then we had the former MI6 chief in the Financial Times saying that although some people will use this as a chance to say, actually, we shouldn't be trying to engage with China and, and shouldn't send the foreign secretary out to China, that's that's not his view. Unusually, Nadine Dorries, a very Marmite former MP for the Conservative Party, published an incredibly, I, I would argue, insightful Daily Mail piece about how this may have happened, how a hypothetical researcher may be enticed to do one of these hypothetical allegations. And then obviously, the World of Podcasts, The Rest is Politics, which has a smidgen more subscribers than we do, had a backwards and forwards between Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell. I think there's one detail from, from that podcast that's worth sort of rehashing slightly, which is Rory Stewart recounting about what access to confidential like top secret information to MPs have and his view basically and I'll I'll paraphrase him slightly is that that's not what really MPs have they don't they don't get access to like a top secret government briefing etc etc the the information they discuss is not necessarily the public domain but it's not put behind these like huge top secret red letters at the top of the paper type things like that one of the things that I think has come out um for debate in, in, in Parliament, but also debate in the media, it's just around engagement or, or not to engage. And one thing I'd probably like to reiterate again is I do genuinely believe that anyone who has engaged with China is not compromised. You know, the UK needs more understanding of China. It needs more people to engage with China. And that's, again, back down to, to us. It's for our own decision making. It's for the UK's decision making. And what, one thing I'll just say is, is a major observation I made when I was on the ground in China, and certainly from when I first arrived to when I left, is just the complete loss or the complete lack of expats and uh, sort of British personnel in China. By the time I'd left, I, I sort of guesstimated there was about a thousand British nationals in Beijing, maybe five to 10,000 mm. within the whole country. You know, and this is, you know, students, this is business personnel, this is teachers. You know, that is shockingly low for a country of 1.4 billion people. And just to kind of go a little bit further down that route, when we start to dig into kind of university degrees out in China, um, now granted this was COVID, so complete block of access in regards to um, getting out to China, but there was a handful and a handful of new students in 2021, 2022. You know, you could count on one hand. And then back here in the UK, and, you know, please, uh, if I get my numbers wrong, please do write in and, and let me know. But I think I'm right in saying there's about 300 to 400 students studying some form of Chinese uh, Mandarin or, or business degrees. You know, we're, so we're talking about 500 people, young, young professionals learning or engaging with China. Now, in my opinion, you know, language is, is a gateway to the culture, but it's, it's, so, it's so important that we understand China and you can't do that from, from the outside. And obviously, on the flip side, you know, I think it's estimated 150 or 100, 200,000 Chinese students studying here in the UK. And they've been doing that for you know, 30 plus years. So when also we sit down and talk to, to diplomats, they speak fluent English. Uh, you know, I, I don't think many of our diplomats speak fluent Chinese. So again, 
maybe it comes back to, to Cleverly's point. Pretending China doesn't exist is not a credible policy. So uh, w- once again, I know the, the Chinese spy story is going to scare a lot of people um, and it's going to put spooks into, into the UK population. But context is really important and engagement is important so we can make better decisions for, for the UK. From my point of view, as a uh, complete outsider on the sort of culture to culture engagement, the the question about how we send students to China safely and how we then bring them back safely and what do we even mean by safe and what's our risk tolerance? I think those are those are definitely questions we can look at fleshing out and trying to understand a bit better, you know, and and part of that will just come from as we progress throughout this season and speak to experts whose entire job it is to work out these things. But I, I do think at this stage. There's a massive breakdown in terms of people-to-people engagement, as you say, at a student level, let alone further down the pipeline when people are actually living in, in China. But to an extent, you know, like, as, as you would have seen as you left China, why, why would you stay for some people? That's, that, that's what they asked themselves. After lockdown and after some of the Chinese government's actions, why would you remain? And I just don't know what the answer would, would, would be to that, you know? Yeah, I think it's not a black or white answer. There's, there's so many shades of grey yeah. and so much nuance. I think absolutely right. Absolutely right. So everything at this stage is speculation. Nothing has changed on a concrete level since the statement from the police in the Sunday Times. And one of those with the allegations against them went through their lawyers and has adamantly stated that the allegations are, are, are not right. So moving away from, from that story, Stam, is the major geopolitical news this week, which is the UN United Nations General Assembly. And this is sort of the main policymaking session that the UN hosts uh, annually. And it compromises of all member states. So here's a question for you, Sam. Do you know how many member states there are? There's at least 12. Yeah. And at most 800 between those two numbers somewhere. <laughs> Spot on. Absolutely nailed it. We're looking for 193. So 193 member states, and they all have an equal vote within the United Nations General Assembly. Like the G20 or G21, she's not attending. But this is not a surprise because he doesn't normally attend the United Nations General Assembly. So I think the best way for us to do this, Sam, is look at it from two perspectives. One is the UK and the second is China. So I'll go straight to you. What's the aim of the UK this year for the United Nations General Assembly? Who's going? Who's not going? And why is this relevant for people listening? Yeah, so look, I absolutely love these sort of things. I love diplomacy in action, and I love watching how the UK tries to project sort of the global Britain image it's, it's trying to create for itself. So the, so Unger, to its friends, is, uh, is a great chance for the UK to do this. Unfortunately, for the first time in a decade, the Prime Minister is not going, so Rishi Sunak is staying at home. But uh, in his place will be the Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden and the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. And obviously, at the UN General Assembly, there's loads of room for bilateral meetings. So, you know, the UK and other people meeting on the sidelines. But the UK's main aims for this one is to discuss things like climate change, Ukraine, and actually AI, artificial intelligence. So on Friday, we can expect to see a speech. It's, we're now recording this on a Tuesday evening. We can expect to see a speech on Friday from the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, discussing AI for development. And the idea he's trying to pitch is... AI should be sort of implemented into developing countries to help them develop faster and more responsibly and better, as it were. That actually chimes quite strongly with the UN chief's own views on AI. It's one of those one of the things that he's potentially going to be raising a lot this week. And uh, I'll include it in the show notes, but there is a fantastic 40-page paper from Crisis Group on sort of like what to look out for at the UN. Uh, AI is going to be very strongly across that. 
Um, and another piece of AI news today, relevant to why people should care in the UK-China space, is that China has been invited to the AI Safety Summit next month, as expected, which is good, actually, I think. And that's what the uh, AI experts have been saying. And fundamentally, the view is that you can't create these systems and leave out one of the world's you know, leading AI powers. But to flip back on its head, Steve, what do you think China's looking for from Unger? Well, I suppose the one elephant in the room that we haven't, well, we didn't mention is the Ukraine-Russian war. I think this will be top on the agenda of many member states trying to um, get an end to that as soon as possible. From a China perspective, I think we all are very clear about the headwinds that the, the country's facing internally. So the economy, youth unemployment. But the big one will be climate policy and climate change. I think on the global stage, I suppose it's it's increasingly clear China is an authority in these international global organisations. And I imagine China will want to publicly promote the multilateral approaches opposed to sort of the US or maybe the perceived global West's opposition to China's rise. So really calling out trade wars, trade sanctions, tariffs, anything that sort of undermines their geopolitical or international stability and development. But I think it will come back down to the main area that China will want to promote and push through the member states and through through a lot of this will be around climate change. The UN is very, very clear that this year they want to promote the sustainable development goals and make sure mm. countries are on track to hit their commitments. And as it stands, China has officially maintained their commitments to peak carbon um, emissions by 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality by 2060, their, their 3060 goals. So... I think, you know, China on one side will be pushing multilateralism and also promoting collaboration potentially around climate change. That's really interesting. I, I again, I, I'd be interested to know your view on this in terms of, I often read probably once every three or four months a piece detailing the environmental issues that China is facing domestically. Do you think that it's understood perhaps in the Western world poorly or, or, or well enough the sort of the situation facing China when it comes to environmental consequences of global warming. So I think genuinely the biggest story that people are not understanding from China is is energy. Their energy transition is just monumental on a scale that is genuinely quite hard to fathom. On one hand, they are the biggest polluter on the planet. That is unquestionably they are the biggest polluter on the planet. But on the other, they are putting more sustainable energy and infrastructure into their country than we than the UK has as a national grid. You know, and they're doing that on a yearly basis, you know, so absolutely it's an un, it's an it's a it's a story that goes sort of unheard of. But it's something we should absolutely dig into is the en- energy transition that China's going through and the, the impacts of climate change. But again, you know, China does lots of things by ticking boxes and the 2030, 2060 goals will be something that every single province, every single minister, every single municipal government will have goals to achieve. So you know, that will be very, very firmly on the, the Chinese agenda. Okay, well, I think we should definitely have a podcast looking at that because it's something I find absolutely fascinating. And you touched on another one of my uh, issues that I care about and know nothing about at all, which is the difference between like provincial governance versus central governance in China and what different provinces are trying to muscle up each other, et cetera, et cetera. So if I could, I think we should hop back on the plane. Having flown from Westminster to New York, I think we should now dilly-dally our way over to Taipei. Have you ever visited Taiwan, Steve? I have actually. Yes, I've been. Um, I went six years ago for my first year wedding anniversary. And being the romantic mm. that I am, I took my wife to a British Chamber drinks event. 
seeing a good, <laughs> seeing my good friend uh, Steve Parker, who was the managing director over there. So, very romantic trip. But no, seriously, um, fascinating city. Just all the amazing elements of of China, just done in a slightly different style. So, really fascinating to to be on the ground and really. Uh, fascinating just to speak to some of the people to understand the realities of life when you've got missiles pointed at you from um, a country 30 miles away. I'm incredibly jealous. I'm I'm dead keen to go, as you know. We're increasingly seeing sort of the political conversation move towards how can we help Taiwan? How can we help Taiwan defend itself? How do we defend a democracy, et cetera, et cetera? So we're obviously with Beijing to Britain, we map that on, on a sort of weekly basis as and when it occurs. But with that in mind, and with the fact of the matter being that the UK policy space needs to have a bit of a better understanding of Taiwan as a whole, which is an exciting prospect, we were really, really lucky to be joined this week by Thompson Chow, who is the Taiwan Foreign Correspondents Club president. Uh, he spoke to us about you know, some of the issues going on right now with Taiwan's presidential election, which is in its beginning stages. It's going to be a fascinating race for a number of reasons, and it will have an impact potentially on the UK-Taiwan relationship. So, Thompson, thanks for joining us. I think we're really keen to get an understanding, first of all, as to who are the big names running ahead of the, the Taiwanese election? Thank you, Sam. Well, I mean, this election we're expecting, it seems to be quite a pretty crowded field. Um, there are four big names currently in running, although not all of them might make it to the final um, election day. Ahead in the polls is the Taiwan's vice president and also leader of the ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party, um, Lai Qingde, who is also known as William Lai. He, he's a veteran politician in Taiwan. He's a former premier in Taiwan, a Tainan mayor in the southern city of Taiwan. And uh, he has he has been enjoying a two-digit lead in the polls for more than a few months. So he, he's sort of the front runner right now. And then we get the opposition sort of in disarray. So sort of, of course, we have the main opposition party, the Kuomintang, the Chinese mm. nationalists, or KMT, as people say. Um, uh, mayor Hou Yi, who is um, the mayor of the biggest city in Taiwan, uh, the new Taipei city, he's the he's supposed to be the key challenger to succeed President Tsai Ing-wen um, after the change of government next May. Okay. Uh, and then we have uh, Ko Wen-de, the, the third candidate, so um, who, who is a surprisingly popular given the lack of the party machine he has he he's the he's the former taipei mayor he, he's a um, a renowned doctor in taiwan and he has sort of capitalized on those who are frustrated inevitably has some frustration over eight years of the incumbent government but who cannot vote for or who won't vote for the opposition kmt because of the party's china leaning policies and last but not least is the Foxconn's, the iPhone assembler of Foxconn, um, mm, mm. Terry Gore, the tycoon with lots of money and resources and who is now sort of the last person in the polls. That's really fascinating. And I, I think the, the incumbent stuff is really, uh, could be quite relevant from the UK's perspective too. I, I guess the question then, the next question is, are any of them running on an independence ticket at all? The, independence is quite a confusing and some would say politically loaded term here in Taiwan, um, I yeah. mean, as, as your as the Foreign Affairs Committee of the UK's Parliament recently noted, I mean, Taiwan's already um, independent under the name Republic of China, uh, and that mm -hmm. the report also says Taiwan possesses all the qualifications of st for statehood. And so, in Taiwan, traditionally, the term Taiwan independence means remaining, of course, independent, but also removing the polity, the constitution and the politics imposed by the Republic of China regime. 
um, led by Chiang Kai-shek. So after Chiang Kai-shek lost the civil Chinese civil war in 1949, he and the, the regime fled to Taiwan and imposed their own politics on the island. And that hasn't changed. So the constitution, the, the official name of Taiwan are still wrapped in this Republic of China. The trappings, they still sort of, you know, being stuck in this Republic of China trappings. Uh, and many, many leading politicians in Taiwan, including President Tsai Ing-wen, are pro-status quo. So they advocate Taiwan mm. remaining as it is, while remaining under the, the name and the law and the constitution of the Republic of China. Um, and we have heard a lot in the last few months about from different presidential candidates about how they want to defend the status quo. In terms of the independence question, and uh, I think a lot of people in the UK would be interested in China's reaction. I think China ha has an increasingly different take. I think China these days see um, pro-status quo as being insufficient. Beijing sees essentially a refusal for uh, a Taiwanese politician to endorse the concept that Taiwan's part of the, the one China, in, in quotation marks. So any refusal to endorse that concept and support that concept as essentially advocating independence. That's a really helpful clarification. Thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, I, the word independence in the context of Taiwan gets chucked about quite a lot here in, in the UK, British media, stuff like that, too. So that's a really, um, a really critical and useful clarification around the status quo and what that means for the, the election candidates. Do you want to hop in, Steve? Yeah, uh, thanks, Thompson. So maybe I just want to change a track. And this is a rather broad question, but I think of, of, of great um, of great interest to anyone outside of Taiwan. So it, this Taiwan seems like a matchstick debate. We constantly read about Taiwan in the news. The geopolitics dominates everything. And it almost seems that to, to an outside perspective, it, it's weaponized, the, the Taiwanese debate. Certainly here in the UK, our former Prime Minister Liz Truss uh, has taken a more bullish defense on Taiwan. The UK Foreign Affairs Committee chair said that James Cleverly should continue on his visit to Beijing, to Taiwan, We've seen Nancy Pelosi's visit with missiles, warships. So again, the, the reaction seems to be from, from China that it's um, a provocation. My, my question really is, you know, what is life like then in, in Taiwan when, when we constantly see these issues? What is it like for the average person on the street? Do they see it as a, the China's invasion, China being the number one threat, or is it purely business as usual? I think there are two facets to this um, to to this question. I think overall the Taiwanese are well aware of the threats uh, uh, from China these days. I mean, as we talk right now, just over the weekend, China has sent over a record number of uh, fighter jets um, near Taiwan as well as uh, warships to Taiwan. Uh, so I think it's very real here. If you live here, you look at the news reports. Um, as a as a journalist, I cover a lot of these developments. Um, and even in the last few weeks and months, Beijing has banned Taiwanese mango imports, threatened to walk back from a very, very, very big trade pact that has been in place for many years between Taiwan and China, and has really sort of continued to build up military presence um, here. And not just here, I mean, in the broader region. But, but at the same time, it's not exactly business as usual, but I think people have been have been seeing the threats and have been feeling the impact for many years now. And that explains why, if you look at the last two presidential elections held in 2016 and 2020, we see the results. The voters overwhelmingly voted for Tsai Ing-wen, who refused to endorse the One China concept. And Tsai actually won uh, over 8 million votes 
in in one of I think it's the big biggest election victory since elections were introduced in Taiwan um, in ninety six. So I, I think that's quite a powerful rejection of um, China's threats um, against Taiwan. But of course, at the same time, you see lots of people being affected: farmers, fishermen. Apples have been banned. Pineapples have been banned. Grouper fish, mangoes, a lot more brands and products from Taiwan. But I think the economic economic impact has been mixed as well. China banned um, mass tourism to Taiwan in 2019 and 2020 and have, have not reopened that um, arrangement so far. But if you look at what's going on in Taiwan now, we feel Taiwan's tourism hasn't really, has not at all collapsed because of that. We see lots of Japanese visitors, Hong Kong tourists and other international travelers coming into Taiwan uh, since COVID restrictions were lifted. Thompson, thank you so much for for that. And uh, hopefully we can check back in as we come closer towards the election itself. But, you know, we really appreciate taking the time to try and add some clarity into the conversation as well. So thank you. That was an absolutely fascinating interview with Thompson that puts a lot more nuance and details to an issue that I just don't think we, that we're too well versed in. And I think what's clear for me is any provocation from you know the global west towards Taiwan cause a reaction from China and we've just seen that with the 103 Chinese warplanes that were over or interfered with the Taiwanese airspace which brings me to my final question Sam this time last year Liz Truss was our prime minister what do you think her reaction to to that specific incident would be I mean that is a brutal question and just before I start answering that I think we should just be clear that um we, we shouldn't label certain things as a provocation towards the Chinese if it's just uh, sort of like the, the Taiwanese behaving as they want to behave. To go back onto the question with Truss, Truss put a lot of her time and effort into expanding on her theory, which was this thing called the Network of Liberty Strategy, where in the UK and you know the USA and other democratic-leaning or democratic countries would sort of band together to form a club, a group, as it were. The term economic NATO was floated at one point. And I suspect there would have been a statement of some sort from the foreign office or or from whoever. Yeah, I mean, trust may well have had a different foreign secretary in place, but I suspect it wouldn't have been uncommented on in that regard. And it'd been fascinating. Who knows where it would have been if she lasted more than, you know, two months. A different world. A different world indeed. Well, thank you for that, Sam. Thanks for your time, Stephen. I think it's been uh, it's been a cool one, definitely, and great to have Thompson on reporting from on the ground in Taiwan. And I'll speak to you next week. Absolutely. And just to mention, we will both be at the Conservative Party conference, where we are hoping to do a live Beijing to Britain podcast. So if you are there, if there's an MPs or party members that want to get in contact with questions or would like to talk to us, please do get in contact because this is a first for us, and we we hope it could be a success. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 